Would you please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10? That's page 854 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. We're not reading all of 10 and 11 today. We're going to start, uh, I can't, I don't have time to cover it all. I'll be starting in the 8th verse, but I do want to give you a little bit of a setting. If you remember last week, we made it up into the 6th trumpet that was sounded by, by the angel. Chapter 10 and 11 is kind of a parenthesis within the 6th trumpet. There's two visions provided for us. Um, actually, it resembles the seals uh, quite closely in the way it does that. Um, but I want us to pick up at, at verse 8. Now, ver- by the time you get to verse 8, a large, gigantic, colossal angel has descended from heaven and has landed on the earth. He's got legs that are pillars of fire, and he's got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, and in his right hand lays a scroll uh, that's, uh, that's being offered to the apostle. And this is what's said in, in verse 8. By, by the way, sorry. You know, on a baptism Sunday, if you're like, if this is your first Sunday here, I want to apologize. You're coming into the eleventh chapter of Revelation. Uh, welcome. Um, we podcast uh, if you feel the, the need to be caught up. Okay, verse eight. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go. Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I wanted to start here this morning because this can be our experience when we study the book of Revelation. Um, Is we want to know the truth of God. And so we read the scriptures and we desire to know everything that's, that's in here. But sometimes and in some places in scripture, once we read it and take it to heart and process it, it sits heavy in us. It, it isn't that God's wrong or, or that there's really a problem. It really is that we're not big enough at times to handle what God's writing. And so, it, you know, we devour the word. That's what the scriptures say. In fact, the Greek here, when it says I ate it, the Greek is really like I devoured it. And there's, there's times when we devour the word of God, when... When in your life, I feel like I'm in one of these times in my life right now where I could spend 20 hours a week in the Word of God right now. I'm just, I mean, I want to rejoice and share that with you. I'm in this place right now where I, dev- I want to devour the Word of the Lord. But when it comes into me, I'm overwhelmed by the Word saying, you're not as you should be. Or things are not as they could be. It's sometimes things are so sweet on the way in, but their implications are so drastic. And that's so true of the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we're, we're dealing with concepts that are heavy. 
that weigh on us. These concepts that deal with the life of the church and the way the church is heading towards a place where it may, it will have to give its life over so that others might live. That's the text we're going to read. The text today is so hard. I want to apologize up front. Uh, it's, I feel that the text is so heavy today, or the implications of it, as, as, I, as the Lord's worked with me this week. And, and, and even beyond just what it means for the church, there's, there's people we love and we care about, and there's friends. And as we read the implications of Revelation, Revelation puts in very clear terms what happens to those who believe and what happens to those who don't believe. And we have to reconcile that. We have to reconcile that with an uncle or a parent or a brother or a sister or a friend or ourselves or whoever it may be. We have to reconcile these things that may come in sweet, but when they sit in us for a while, they just are very difficult to digest. And I just want to to tell you, I I understand if, if you read the text like this and you deal with anxiety about your children or your grandchildren or, or what's going to happen. And I would just, I want to encourage you that the Lord has equipped us to deal with this indigestion and he's equipped us with his, his gospel. But to me, the gospel comes in sweet and it nourishes. It nourishes my anxiety. It nourishes what's wrong with me in the world. It nourishes who I'm becoming, it just, it just pushes in, into our veins and, it, and it, digest, it just digests in such a wholesome way that gives us peace. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to speak the gospel over you. As we lean into this, I just want to start with putting first things first and reminding ourselves that even though we're reading the last chapter of the book, essentially, we're in the last book of the Bible and we're heading towards the end of that book, even though we're there, we don't want to be, forget all that's been said in front of it, and all that's being said over us and about us. And so what I want to do is, just as a beginning, is whether you want to close your eyes or just remain open, I want to just speak the gospel over you. And this is it. God loves you. God loves you. God loves mankind. God loves us tremendously. God is overflowing with love for us. It's out of God's love for us that he made us. It's out of God's love for us that he placed us in community, in relationship with the man and the woman. It's out of God's love for us that he didn't just make us and let the world go and and just hope it goes fine, but he he was involved in the world and involved in their lives and, 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 and tried to show them the way to be. It's out of God's love that even though we've messed things up in so many ways, right? the corporate sin of mankind is so thick and so varied, and so black. But God loves us. That even though all of that's happening, he was not content to say, well, that didn't work out so well. But that he said, I am also a fixer. I love them so much that I redeem them, that I fix them, that no matter how they break themselves, I put them together in new and beautiful ways. I take what was wrong, and I make it preach. That's what God does, because he loves us. He sent his own son. He sent his own son to earth to live in our dark world, to persevere through our dark world, to suffer amidst the darkness of this world and to die on the cross to bear the weight of all of that sin and all of the punishment and all of the penalty that you or I deserve. God sent Jesus because he loves us. For God so loved the world. 
he did that. He says that whoever would believe in him might not ever perish, but have eternal life. This is the story of Scripture. We're in the last throes of the last moments of the story that's dealing with big ideas as they're on their way to closure. But don't forget, in your anxiety, when things don't digest well, you need to remember God sent his son to call the world to repentance. And through massive grace that you and I can only begin to understand, has he been doing this? And I hope, again, I hope, if the anxiety of revelation comes on you, that you might call the gospel to mind. Now we're going to get into it. You ready? I'm going to read three verses, and then we're going to stop. And then I'm going to read some other ones. And um, I just pray, I pray that I'm saying what God wants me to say, and I pray that you can hear it the right way. I love this church. I love this church. I feel wedded to my church. So please hear all of this in the right way. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my witnesses, two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. The 11th chapter of Revelation is uh, almost unanimously considered the hardest chapter in the book. It is the chapter that has the most diverse approaches and interpretations. And, and so I want to say I have to take a position, and I have, but I take it understanding that I am in an ocean of opinion. And uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, think, I think what I have to say today is, is godly. Before we kind of interpret, I want to I deal with something that it, it's just time to deal with, an idea of interpretation that I think has been at work in our lives. And I just want to bring it to the surface. I want us to know a little bit more about ourselves. And, and so I'll say this. There are many in, in the faith that would qualify or characterize themselves as literalists when it comes to Scripture. Literalists. Which means, what they mean to say when they say that is, I... When I read the scripture, I believe what it says at face value. Whatever the scriptures say, I seek to commit myself to it in faith. Now, there's all sorts of varying degrees of kind of literalists. The healthy version is not saying that when they're in the book of Psalms and the Lord talks about the four corners of the earth, they're not saying, well, then I submit to the fact that the earth is flat and has four corners. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is is my default position when I approach Scripture is to take the text at face value and then I migrate from there when it's demonstrated to me that the the text is, either whether it's the style of text or the purpose of the text, takes me somewhere else. That's what they're saying. They're saying my default position is I read a word, I process the word, I commit it to the Lord. Now, there's good things about this. The first, the first, these are the impetuses behind this, of which it's, it is in many of us. So I just am trying to describe us for us, for our sake. 
One of the reasons I think many of us do this is we do not trust ourselves when we're given the word. And so when we read the text, we, are, we understand that if left to our own devices, we will derail the truth through kind of figurative spiritual meaning. That's what we, we know we'll do that. Because we do that all the time in our own life. Well, that wasn't really a sin. I mean, he's dead and I'm holding the gun, but the bullet did the work. Or, you know, we just have this way of, of allegorizing so much of our own kind of faults in life and, that we don't trust ourselves. So one safety mechanism that we've instituted for ourselves is when we read something, we place it to faith. So a good literalist will say when Jonah, the text says that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. I don't believe that Jonah was swallowed by remorse. My default position is, it's fish. That's kind of how it works for a literalist. Here's another reason why people kind of approach the text this way. They approach the text this way because they have seen how many times the symbolic approach to Scripture has wreaked havoc to the truth. That oftentimes, one of the primary ways that the enemy enters into the text and kind of messes with it, did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree? Remember that? Symbolic. That's how the enemy enters in. And so you'll find time and time again that the, the, the kind of the symbolic approach has been used as an effort to turn down the implications of Scripture and soften the blow on our spirit. And so you'll see it like this. You'll see, by the way, you'll see it on every hot topic social issue in the church. You name it, you'll find the symbolic approach hard at work trying to kind of tune it down. Okay? But even upon the most significant central ideas, it's alive. Here's an example. The crucifixion of Christ. And the symbolic approach would go like this, is going like this right now across the nation. Whether or not Jesus was really crucified is really neither here nor there. Because such great rich truth can be drawn from the story. The story of, of this Christ paints a beautiful picture of God's love for all people and also paints a beautiful picture of the value of sacrificial love for others. Now, is that true? Yes. Right? Those are certainly solid implications of the crucifixion. Is it enough? No. Unless my sin is symbolic, I need something real. I really need a real Jesus, a real perfect person who's lived a perfect life to die on my behalf so that my real sins might receive real atonement before I approach the throne of the real God and someone has to give answer. Really, that's how it has to work. I need the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't just need God's love. I need his atonement. I've really done something that has really separated me from God. How do I get back? How do we get back? How do we draw closer? Something has to happen. He rose on the third day to demonstrate that it did. He really rose. It's not symbolic. But... 
That's why people are driven into kind of a literalist approach is they don't trust themselves and they look out in the world and they go, and I don't trust them either. I read a word, I believe it. The problem with that is that in an apocalyptic literature, the literal approach is not the default position of interpretation. Rather, the symbolic approach is. When reading this kind of literature, the proper way to interpret it is to, from the starting point of there really is something deeper and more significant behind the image that's at work and that's trying to teach us. And so, with that said, we're going to kind of read most of the 11th chapter. And I'm going to encourage you to have this different default position. Not because we're trying to tone down the word. We are certainly not going to do that today. In fact, in in Revelation, if you want to tone down Revelation, in my opinion, read it literally. The symbolic weight of Revelation is absolutely tremendous. And I want to show you this. I'll pick up in verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours the enemy. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying and they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, and they will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, of a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud with their enemies, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Now, there's no one here who's going to get their uh, stomach full of description today. We're going to move quickly. I would say Friday night, 7 to whenever. Come on, we can talk about it then. Uh, Right here, child care from 7 to 9. But in this text here, the question is, is it literal or is it figurative? And again, there's been tremendously good work from godly people on both sides. I will say, I have waffled back and forth on this 30 times, 50 times over the past two years. I'm convinced it's this, and then, oh, well, I think it's this, and I think it's this, and I think it's this. And I'm con- I have continued to waffle all the way up into Thursday. And on Thursday, not because I'm just wa- a waffly guy. I'm not a waffly guy. It's because it's challenging. But on Thursday, I feel like I had peace. Now, I don't know if I'm in the middle of a waff. I don't think I am. 
I don't think I am. But I, I, I received peace this Thursday during the study of God's word. And I will say, I would like to, I would like, I'm attracted to the, the literal ideas that are cast here in the scripture. I, something about it feels real to me. Uh, my wife used to say, why do you think it's real? I would say, because I can almost smell the dust of the city in this text. It just has an earthy tone about it. These two men walking and prophesying. It's almost as though John's describing the vision as he's watching it on television from like a CNN report. But I am convicted and convinced that it is symbolic. And here's some of the reasons. Here's the most notable one. The witnesses are known as what? Anybody remember? Lampstands. What's a lampstand? In, Apocalypse, in, in Revelation, what is a lampstand? So far we've read of seven of them. It's a church. The seven lampstands are the seven churches in the first three chapters. In chapter one, we see the image of Christ. He's among his seven lampstands. And then he begins to write to the seven lampstands, which the writer says is, know this, the mystery of the seven stars and the seven lampstands are this. The seven stars are the spirits of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. That's within the very same book. It is, tr- it is very difficult to get past that. It, for anyone who's going to approach this literally, that is, a, that is a major crux, a difficult crux to say, what does that mean? Because they're lampstands. Other things that are at work that are symbolic or spiritual in nature are this. 1,260 days. Now that sounds earthy and real. The reality is it's three and a half years. Three and a half years to anybody who knows, like to the apocalyptic crowd, which there are very few these days. They know that three and a half years is the apocalyptic number for a limited time. It's in Daniel. It's half of seven. The, the actual Hebrew in Daniel would be a time, times, and half a time. That's what's used to kind of say for some period of time, not forever, but for some period of time. So that's how long that these lampstands will be prophesying, is for, for a limited time. Then you have other clearly symbolic ideas that begin to at work right here. The, the, the beast, the Satan, you know, Satan, or the force of Satan that's coming up, once their testimony is complete, the beast wages war against them. It's hard to imagine a war being waged against two people. It's much easier, if, if you understand the lampstands as the church, to understand that the world and the Satan and the prince of this world is rising up against the church, the global church. In fact, do you notice who, who gloats over the de- dead people? People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's almost as though the church has spread its gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, They've heard, they've made their decision, the end is time. And the Lord allows Satan to rise up and crush the church. This is the final chapter in my mind, 11. Chapter 11 is the final chapter of the church in the story of the end. This is the account of how the Lord is, the detailed account of how the Lord is removing the church. The church will bear powerful witness. The world will hear. During the time that the church is giving testimony to the world, God will protect them. When that time is complete, 
God will allow Satan, just as he allowed Satan with his son, to wage this last impotent strike of death onto the church, which the world will think we've defeated the church, that the buildings are destroyed, there's no more gatherings, the Christians have scattered, they're underground, they're by themselves, the families are, have been parted, and no one's gathering, it's now illegal, these sorts of things. That's the environment, you know, in my mind, that's the environment that I, I would expect maybe that might come forward. And then, just when the world thinks they've, they've rid themselves of the testimony of Christ, the Lord will resurrect kind of the church for our, from underneath the underground, and he will rapture them to himself. That's what's being talked about here. This is the second time in Scripture that the rapture has been alluded to. The Lord says, come up here, and they rise to the Lord in the clouds. Now, that is... That's about as much description as I'm going to give today. Um, we can Friday, we'll spend hours on this if you want. Um, but what I want to do is I've been just so convicted to move us beyond description of what's going to happen. That's what I've been struggling with. Is, is as I've been reading the scriptures and as I've been talking with Pastor Terry and we've been wrestling with you know, what the Lord's doing in our lives and what the Lord's preaching through the text, I feel this, this need to move beyond what's going to happen to some church one day to prescription of what it means and what it implies to the church that's meeting right now at 505 Schoolhouse. What does this mean to us here? That this is going to happen to a church one day. What, what does that mean to us here? That's what I've been asking the Lord. And this is, this is what I have to share. If you look at history, this is what you'll see. In the early church, what we observe through the book of Acts is a powerful, spirit-filled church where the spirit just works through the church to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to nations and tribes and tongues in such a way that in the 17th chapter of Acts, they're crying out about the church. They're saying, these people have turned the world upside down. That's the claim that's made about the church. The church is so powerful in these early days. And then, if you look throughout history, any time you find an environment in which the church is being persecuted for its faith, what you find is an environment in which the Spirit is hard at work and where great things are happening, though in kind of a crucible of the faith and, and, and the Lord's working things out, even though it's difficult. And you see this and you're like, wow, can't believe they spread the gospel amidst such difficulty. And then you get to the final chapter of the story, and this is what we see. We see a church amidst great persecution, but the powerful spirit is on them, and they preach the truth with boldness, so that every nation and tribe and tongue and people know the truth of God, and that God works powerfully through that, despite their hardship. That's what I see. Early church, faithful, persecuted church throughout history, and the end of the church. And then I place myself in our context of comfort. and comparative mediocrity. Now look, I think we're, we're the best church in the time zone. 
I'm proud of our church. I love our church. I would compare my church to any other church, but God is not comparing us to any other church. That's not what God's doing. That's not what God's interested with. God is not interested in whether we're a little better than them. He wants us to be godly. God has given us good news. God has given us a word of truth that saves people. God has shown his love to us in a brilliant way. The expectation God has is that we take this love and we convey it in a loving, sacrificial way and then his spirit shows up. Churches don't get persecuted and then get faithful. Churches get persecuted because they're faithful. The persecution is not what makes them faithful. When persecution comes, churches either extinguish or show themselves. I have this desire that we would show ourselves more faithful. Have you noticed that very few people are asking us, what is it that we have? People aren't coming to us. To the American church, just generalize it. People are not saying, why are you so different? Why, do you, why are you like a light in a dark room? Now, this is happening at individual levels, and it's happening in small ways. Again, the, the Lord is alive in our church. He's at work in our church. What I'm saying is, is I'm discontent looking at the early church and the persecuted church and the late church. I'm discontent with the fact that we don't share in the Holy Spirit the way they do. I want more of that. Not in a charismatic way. I'm not hoping that somebody stands up and whoops. I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit comes down and works works His his grace out powerfully through the way that we love and sacrifice for others. That's what I want. I want us to look different. I'm sitting the other day in, in a coffee shop and I'm sitting there going, why does nobody want to know what I have? I have my Bible open. I'm looking priestly. Nobody's asking me anything. They walk by me. Why is that? It's because we we have accommodated ourselves. We don't even see ourselves in God's light anymore. If if we were brilliantly godly, I believe awesome things would happen. I believe we would not have to wait till the 11th chapter of Revelation to see this, but it would happen now. In fact, the Lord has promised it. He says, look, I will give you, you will do even greater things than I have done. Did he not say that in John 14? He said that to his disciples. You will go on to do greater things than I've done, things you haven't even dreamed of. Now, was he saying, did he say now at the very end of time in Revelation 11, they will do greater things than I have done? No, you will do it. That promise extends through the apostles to the church throughout history. Acts 1 I will pour out my spirit on you, and you will be my witnesses. I want to feel that. I want, I want to feel that outpouring more. Some of. I know, I know. And some, some of your minds are thinking, well, we're not persecuted and this is America. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. 
the Lord, the Lord's call to us to overcome has nothing to do with persecution. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. This is what this church has to overcome. I'm not saying we're Sardis. I'm saying this is a church, a lampstand that's beneath the Lord that is not being faithful, and it's in this time. The Lord's saying to them, you need to be radical about what I've done for you. Here's another one of the seven. The church of Laodicea in the 14th verse. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I'm not saying we're Laodicea. I'm saying the church in Laodicea is not being persecuted. And both of these churches are charged to overcome. What is God asking them to overcome? God is saying, do not accommodate to the comfort of this world because you are extinguishing the flame of your testimony. They're saying your churches are not rousing the curious suspicion of the faithless. That your, your lazy kind of relaxed experience with the Lord, your hobby of the faith, is not calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. Overcome or I will extinguish the lamp. That's what it's saying. I'm not saying we're faithless. I'm just saying... We should look at Revelation 11 and not wince. We should look at Revelation 11 and covet. Why is the Spirit being poured out there in a radical way and not here? And I am convinced in my heart it's because nobody around here is wondering what we're doing. I'll close with this. The 28th chapter of Matthew, there is the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And I am with you always, even until the ends of the earth. That is what the Lord says. This past week, Friday, it was read over me by somebody. Somebody was just reading it, had nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But they read from verse 16, which is the black letters. We never read the black letters. This is what it says. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, the Great Commission. Now, I, I, I could swear to you, God penciled in, but some doubted Friday, that it was not there on Thursday. I have never seen that in my entire life. What did these 11 apostles doubt? Did they doubt the resurrection of Jesus? He's there. Right? In fact, this isn't like Jesus just was resurrected. They're 50 miles north in Galilee. This is long after the resurrection. This is after Jesus has appeared. After Thomas has put his hand in his side. This is after all of that. They're meeting with the, Jesus is meeting with the apostles on an assigned predetermined mountain 
north in Galilee. They've gathered their worshiping, and some of them are doubting. What could they possibly be doubting? Who could be saying, well, I don't know if really Jesus is really out of the grave. He's there. He's with them. He's speaking to them. He made an appointment. Meet me on the mountain on Wednesday. They meet him. They're worshiping, and yet some are doubting. What are they doubting? Are they doubting that Jesus is resurrected? No. Just like you, many of you do not doubt in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't doubt in your faith, but you do doubt when it comes to bearing witness of his love in your life. I don't know what's going to happen if I do this. Clearly, clearly, if their doubt was, is this really Jesus? His response would be something like, put your hand in my side again. Look at my wrists again. Touch me that, that, his, not, his response has nothing to do with any of that. What is his response? Listen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go. Go. Make disciples and baptize. This doubt, this is the chronic doubt of the comfortable church. This is the doubt of, I believe Jesus was resurrected, but I don't know what to do if he's not with me. This is the doubt of, will the Spirit really show up? This is the doubt of, I know the Spirit showed up in the early church, and I know the Spirit's going to show up in the late church, and I know the Spirit shows up in all the present persecuted church, but is the Spirit going to show up in our church in a powerful way? This is that kind of doubt. To which the Lord says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So go. I want, to, I want to convict, but I want to encourage. The gospel of Christ is not just for us. And it is not our hobby. It is our passion. Christ said in Acts, My spirit will pour out and you will be my witnesses.